Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, as you know, we've been in the, first, the book of 1 John for a few uh, weeks now. Today we're up to chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Before we get into our passage today, though, I, I want to pose this question to you. How sure are you of anything in your life? How sure are you of anything in your life. The weatherman has been telling us, or the weather person has been telling us, that we're to get a big snowstorm. How sure, how confident are you in the weather person's advice that, that we're going to get snow and ice? Uh, the local uh, principalities were so sure they decided to salt our roads well in advance of the, the rain and snow coming which I'm thankful for them uh, when it does actually freezing rain or snow. I'm glad that they take care of it. But how sure are you in the weather person? Does it just mean that categorically all weather people are bad at their jobs because they miss it so often? Or is it that the weather is very hard to, be, to predict? Is it hard to be sure what's going to happen in the weather? Even this morning, many of us drove here. We have the luxury of owning a car. How sure were you that when you put your key in the ignition and turned the ignition that your car was going to start? I'm very sure that my car is going to start until I put the key in and I hear that dreaded noise. Click, click, nothing. It's tax season. There is one thing we've always been told that we can be sure of in life. That's what? Death and taxes. But John tells us today that there is something that we can be completely sure of. There is something that we can have assurance in beyond a shadow of a doubt. And here's what I think John is after today. The struggle with sin is a reality that every believer must deal with. But we can fight against sin because we can be sure of the work of Christ on our behalf and know that our salvation is secure in Him. Brothers and sisters, what I'm going to relay to you today is the security, the assurance that you can have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. One of the, the great strains that I feel even in the, preparing this particular sermon is something that Paul talks about in Galatians 4.19. It, it's the great strain that pastors often feel in, in helping those that they're called to preach to, to, to strive for obedience in Christ-likeness. Because what I'm going to try to build for you today is that you can be so completely assured in the person and work of Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins 
and to sustain you to fight against sin, that you are renewed and revigorated in your fight against sin. Because if you have surety in Jesus Christ, then you have surety in the power that he gives you to fight against sin. But oftentimes we, we feel the weight of our own sin. We feel like there's a sin that we're never going to get over or never going to get past. But, but today, I want you to be so reassured in the person and work of Jesus Christ that you would continue in the battle against sin. With this in your mind, I want to encourage you to stand with me, if you're able, for a reading from the Word of God, 1 John chapter 2, if you'll stand for a reading from the Word of God. 1 John chapter 2. We need to hear the tenderness in this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. Point number one in this particular sermon, I think, is the emphasis that John is giving here to who he refers to as Christ the righteous. And in light of Christ the righteous, John is going to call us as Christians with tender affection to do something in particular. The thing that he's calling us to do here is to not sin. Now, if you remember from the past few weeks, one of the things that we have said over and over again is that a Christian cannot be a Christian if their habit of their life is sin. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin, but if the habit of our life, the thing that we love, the thing that we consistently do is sin, then this this text has told us over and over that the love of the Father is not in those who the habit of their life is sin. But what John is recognizing here is that each one of us are tempted, even as Christians, to sin. And in light of who Christ is, he's calling us to not sin, to not even commit a single act of sin. And at the same time, he addresses the reality that each one of us at some point in time may be tempted to sin and may choose to sin. He says, I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing this letter to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, this assumes the possibility of the condition. Now, remember, in the last sermon... We talked about conditional clauses that were indicated by the word if. And again, we have this conditional clause, if. If, assuming that you're potentially going to, if you sin, we're going to see that both here in verse 2 and in verse 3, 
It's important to note because both of these relate to our behavior or our actions. If we sin, again, John is calling us here to to not sin, but remember how he put it in chapter 1, to walk in the light, to not walk in the darkness. And it's not just John that has called Christians to do this. This is a consistent call of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Remember in John chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus speaking, it says, After Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse happens to you. There's this consistent call all throughout the Scriptures of the people of God being called by God himself to not sin. But John is recognizing the reality of what often happens in our lives in relationship to sin. And maybe you can sympathize with this. In my life, I feel like I am consistently in one of three seasons in relation to sin. I'm either being tempted to sin, I'm either caught in a sin, or I'm having victory over sin. I'm either being tempted to sin, caught in sin, or having victory over sin. That's kind of been the ebb and flow of my life. Thankfully, it appears recently that I have been more in a victory over sin kind of a season. Thank God for that. It's only by His grace. But here is the argument that John is building. He says, I'm writing to these things that you may not sin, but if you do, if you are tempted to sin and then you choose to sin, what then should we know about Jesus Christ in order to see what's happening correctly? What does he say? If anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father. And how does he describe Jesus? Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he's painting a picture of a people, of of you and me, as people who are not righteous, but have a righteous advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And, and right away, brothers and sisters, we, we should start to feel this sense that knowing what Jesus Christ is doing, that he is our advocate at this moment, he is actively advocating for you in the courtroom of heaven, should start to build in you a confidence and motivation based on what Jesus Christ is and does to continue to engage in the fight against sin. We have to have a clear picture of who Jesus Christ is and how worthy he is of our worship in fighting against sin if we're ever going to consistently make war against sin in our lives. When we do sin, get this, brothers and sisters, there is a continual possession that we have of Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. He is ours, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And according to this passage, there are two things that we possess in him. And this is important for us to know again, to hold on to these two promises from God in Christ. These are ours in him. Here are the two things. One I've already mentioned. Jesus Christ, the righteous in our sin, is our advocate and our propitiation. 
Now, Peter and I were remarking this morning, the more times you say the word propitiation, the harder the word gets. So by the end, it's, I'm going to be saying popsicle sticks or something of that nature. But it's significant to understand the fact that he is our advocate and our propitiation. Now, we've got to get a clear picture of what these two things mean. As our advocate, Jesus Christ has both a presence and a relationship with God the Father in which he can advocate for us to him. Now, I want to be very careful here because I'm not painting a picture that Jesus Christ and God the Father are two separate entities and one is advocating on behalf of us to the other, but in fact, God is triune, but Jesus Christ does something in particular for us as God to God the Father. And what he is doing, according to this passage, is that when we are in Jesus Christ, when we have repented and received forgiveness from Jesus, and we are in Jesus Christ and he is in us, he is our legal advocate or counsel for the defense. Now, why is this important? Who among us that even with the best lawyer in the world could stand before the courtroom of heaven and have any hope of escaping judgment? Who? The answer is no one. No one. Unless, unless Christ the righteous stands in our place as both the legal advocate and the evidence upon which our case is built. So that when God the Father looks upon us, he doesn't see you and me, the sinner. He sees who? Christ the righteous. How is this, brothers and sisters, how is this even possible? This is in the second thing that we have in Christ. Not only is he our advocate, he is our propitiation. Propitiation is just a big word that means satisfaction that placates the wrath of God. The only thing that any person should ever be afraid of in the history of the world is the wrath of God. That is the only thing. And in our payment for our sin, Christ as our propitiation satisfies that wrath so that for you and I, brothers and sisters, there is no wrath of God waiting for us. This word propitiation, the Greek word is only actually used twice in the whole Bible. It's only used here and in 1 John 4.10. There are other words that are translated propitiation, but John has a special usage here. What he is communicating to us is that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. He is the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God that none of the Old Testament sacrifices could satisfy. And in doing this, brothers and sisters, not only does he satisfy the wrath of God, but he makes us favorable to God. Can you wrap your head around this? Sinners made favorable to a holy God. Jesus does this for us. 
He makes it so that our sins are no longer counted against us. Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians 5.19. He says, that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And in doing this, he becomes the priest who advocates for the sinful people and the sacrifice that is offered on their behalf. That's the essence of what it means that he is both our advocate and our propitiation. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says it clearly like this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Feel again the weight of this particular statement. If, if you find yourself in a season where you are tempted to sin, do you know who sympathizes with you in that moment? Jesus Christ the righteous. He knows what it's like to be tempted by sin. He knows the struggle that you have in the war against sin because he himself was tempted. But yet, brothers and sisters, Hebrews tells us again that he is different than any high priest. In Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, it says this, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This passage reminds us that the sacrifice and the advocation never has an end because Jesus Christ rose from the grave and eternally lives. There's a particular response then that we should have to this particular passion. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we see Jesus as both the great high priest and the sacrifice that advocates and atones for us, the immediate response should be to encourage each other to hold fast to this message, to strive, to stir each other, to stir each other up to love and good works, and to keep our eyes focused on that day that's drawing near when Jesus Christ will return for us. There's a particular phrase in verse 2 that many people get hung up on. And I think they get hung up on it because they're trying to prove a particular theological point in this passage, and in fact, they miss the very point of the passage. The phrase is at the end of verse 2. It says, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And the debate becomes then, did Jesus Christ die for everyone? Did he just die for the elect? Are there some people who have been atoned for that won't end up in heaven because the sacrifice extends to everyone? Everyone. 
let me just try to provide some clarity on this particular issue and then come back to what I think the actual point is in the passage. This idea of Christ dying for the sins of the whole world seems to echo what Jesus said, or John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 29. When John sees Jesus coming towards him, he says these words that are now famous, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think what's being indicated here is that in this description of the world, he is not saying, or he is saying, at one time God had a special relationship with the Jewish people, but now the gospel message is going worldwide. The blessings of the gospel now extend to all nations, a ransom available to all people in some sense without exception. Paul echoes this in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 7, when he describes what he's been commissioned to do. He says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was pointed a preacher and apostle, I'm telling you the truth, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 2 is that the gospel, Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, and that all that Paul means is the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. But even in this particular passage, there is no one who would say that Jesus Christ is interceding on behalf of all people for all time. The intercession, the advocation of Jesus Christ is made only for believers. And so the sacrifice is a sacrifice that was made for believers. Let me be really clear here, though. How many of us know who the elect are? Anybody? Nobody. So who should we proclaim the gospel to? Who do we know falls inside of the category of world and all and Gentiles? I have no idea. So our command inside of this gospel presentation is to declare the gospel to everyone. We are to see that the gospel is ministered far and wide. Now, let me shift gears to back to what I think the point of the passage is. I don't think the point of the passage is for us to debate fine theological issues. Here's what I think that John is getting at. Think about the description of people that John has given to us this, up to this point. How has he described people? Liars, sinners, the truth is not in them. They care so little about God that they don't care if they make God a liar or not. And it should leave us with this sense of if this is mankind, who then can be saved? If this is what we're like as people, can, can I be saved? Is it possible to redeem me? Is it possible to redeem you? Is it possible to redeem anyone? Listen to what John says. He is the propitiation not just for your sins. The power of the gospel isn't just sufficient to save you, but it's to save anyone who believes. 
The picture that's being painted here is that we have drastically underestimated the power of the advocator and the propitiator in our salvation. That he is so powerful that the gospel is sufficient to save sinners who reject God and want nothing to do with him, and yet his gospel, his blood saves them. And not just you and me, but a person from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. That is the power of the gospel. And again, I hope that you're seeing and feeling as believers this building confidence, this building assurance in Jesus Christ that if you feel the defeat of sin, that you are ready to renew in the battle. That in Christ and your assurance in him, the payment of his sins as your propitiation and your advocator who constantly uh, makes your case before the courtroom of heaven, you're ready to get back in the battle against sin. And if not, let's continue to go on to this passage. What what does he continue on in saying in verse 3? If we know him, and or by this we know him, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Again, he's pointing back to chapter 1, verse 5. that the person who knows God will live in the light like God does. And I think in particular, he's, he's speaking to now even a larger audience. Because oftentimes when we struggle with sin, we start to doubt our own salvation. Has anybody else felt that way? That, that when I seem to be tempted by similar sins and seem to give in to similar sins, I start to wonder if I am saved at all. And this passage says that you can be sure, you can be sure that you know him. And how can you be sure? If we keep his commandments. You can know if you are a believer, if the trajectory of your life is a desire to obey the Word of God. And again, this is this second conditional clause of this particular passage. If the consistency of your life is to walk in the light, you can be assured of your salvation. But he continues on in verse 4, because there, there's a bit of, of a test that's happening here. He says, And by this we know in verse 3, but also in verse 4 it says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. What's happening in this particular passage, both in the positive and in the negative sense, is that there's a principle being tested in the individual life of the believer. And the principle is, do you obey God's commands or do you not? And there should be a testing that that you do yourself to look at the trajectory of your life to see if you're consistently obedient to the Scriptures. But there's another important factor that, especially in American Christianity, that we leave out that is actually really important for us to discuss today as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper. Part of 
life in the church together is us together testing and encouraging each other as to whether or not we're being obedient to the commands or not. And in a very real sense, the the Lord's table is a marker of us agreeing together that the trajectory of our lives is one of obedience and one of love for God in obeying His Word. That's why in the church discipline process, when someone is unrepentant from sin and they've been confronted and they've been called to repentance and it's happened at multiple levels throughout the church, the thing that is removed from them if they're not repentant is observing the Lord's Supper with the church. In effect, the church is saying, you've been tested and you've proven yourself to not be a believer, so the mark that the church uses to indicate who believers are or aren't is now taken away. But here's the deal on the positive side, because I've had multiple conversations with many of you good brothers and sisters where you're in the midst of a difficulty, you're in the midst of of battling sin, you're in the midst of, of struggle, and you start to doubt your own salvation or even the power of God. And this is where the church gets to come alongside you and go, brother, I have seen your life for the last 10 years. You are on the right path. Keep fighting. This is one of the great joys that we get to do together as we see each other's lives. When we struggle, we can come arm in arm with each other and go, keep fighting this sin, brother. I believe you, or sister, I believe you to be a genuine Christian because your life marks you off as one. And we get the incredible joy of encouraging each other forward in our walk of faith by the test that we've seen of each other's lives. But the one who doesn't keep his commandments, one who doesn't walk in the light, it is the duty and the responsibility of the church to call such a one to repentance. Because this passage says, the one who does not keep his commands, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see, there should be this cognitive, but also relational knowledge of Christ. To know him, this is how we know that we know him. This is how we cognitively know that we have a relationship with Christ, is if we obey his commands. But there should be this consistent obedience to the word, not as a legalistic obedience, but out of love and reverence to Christ the righteous as our propitiation and as our advocate. Because this working out, this obedience to the commands, this keeping of the word as verse 5 describes it, what does it say about that person? Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. And what this means is that as a person continues to live out this obedience to the word, He's perfected, meaning he's brought to the end goal. And he's going to describe what that end goal is, but here's the thing that you can rest assured of. 
You are in the situation that you are in currently because God believes it's exactly what you need to bring you to the goal that he has for you. Just as sure as you can be in your salvation with Christ as your propitiation and as your advocate, you can be sure that he is working out your progressive sanctification through the situation he has you currently in to bring you to the goal that he has in mind for you. But look how he ends in verse 6. Whoever he says he, who, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's one thing to talk the talk. It's another thing to walk the walk. And again, this is a principle that's being tested in the individual life of the believer. I don't want to get on this hobby horse for a long time, but I'm going to for a moment. It is a popular idea, especially in Western Christianity, that Christianity, being a Christian, is very individualistic. That it's about your personal faith with Jesus Christ. And you're not going to find that in the Scriptures. What you're going to find is a community of believers striving to be like Jesus Christ, helping each other be like Jesus Christ, confronting each other when they're not like Jesus Christ, unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the church, it should be expected that the one who says he knows God lives like he knows God with other believers that live like they know God. And when that doesn't happen, it should be expected and actually even treasured for another believer in the church to know your life well enough to come to you and say, friend, brother, sister, it doesn't look like you're walking as he walked. And even in today's day and age, there are many people who would call themselves Christians who do not submit to the authority of a local church who make it very confusing for those of us who are trying to walk as he walked because they are saying they know him, but then they're not walking as he walked. Can I just say what this text says about those people? Will you allow me that latitude? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So when you see folks on television or in your regular life that say, I love Jesus, and then don't walk like Jesus is, what does this text say about them? They're a liar, and the truth is not in them. So do not be confused by those who claim to love Jesus Christ, but then don't walk as Jesus Christ because they're not in Jesus Christ. But let me just take a moment to, to speak, hopefully to two groups of people, to, to give you a final encouragement before we observe the Lord's Supper. One, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your advocate and your propitiation, he extends both of those to you today in confessing to him that you are a sinner and you're in need of an advocate and someone to 
to atone for your sins. And he will do those both for you immediately upon your confession. He will become your advocate and your propitiation in the courtroom of heaven and declare you forgiven where your sins will be held against you no more. And in a moment, we're going to pray. And at that time, I want to encourage you to cry out to God and ask him to forgive you of your sins and to do what he said he would do for you here in the word. But let me, let me speak to these three categories that I gave you before in terms of potentially where you might be in terms of with, your, with sin. Brother and sister, if you are here today and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's a very good possibility that you are being tempted today to sin. There's a very good possibility that the voices around you that are coming from the world, maybe even from your own family, people that you care about, your coworkers, they are encouraging you to give into sin. And let me encourage you by the blood of Jesus Christ, resist the temptation to sin. Do not give in. Brother and sister, if you have given in to the temptation to sin, you are currently trapped like a bird in a snare in a particular sin. Be renewed in knowing who Jesus Christ is and fight. Fight against sin. Pick up the armor of the Lord and begin to fight again against the sin in your life. Fight. And friend, if you are in a current season of victory over sin, remember it is not you that won the victory, but it is Jesus Christ. One of the most dangerous things that we can do when we have victory over sin is think that we are the ones who had the power to overcome it. But it is only by the propitiation and the advocation of Jesus Christ that you and I have been declared righteous and have the power to overcome sin. Do not fall lazy or sleepy in your victory. And at the same time, celebrate the victory that God gives you in your sin and over your sin. If you find yourself in the temptation to sin, caught in a sin, or even victory over sin, I want to invite you now to, to pray with me and, and either celebrate the victory you're having, ask the Lord to give you strength to fight against temptation, or to fight out of the sin that you're currently caught in. But let's ask Christ and celebrate him in our prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that we can know not just what you have done for us, but what you are currently do, doing for us. Help us, Lord. Help the one who is tempted today to sin, to not give in to the temptation, but to see you as worthy, to see you as powerful enough to fight against that sin. Lord, for the one who is caught in a sin and feels defeated by the sin, let them know that you have already won the victory, that you have made a way that in this temptation that they might endure, and they might endure to your glory. Lord, for those who are in a, a season of victory over sin, let us press on. Let us continue to fight and to press forward, to not be tempted, to not give in to sin, but instead have a life that is marked by victory over sin because of what you have done for us.
Lord, thank you for what you have done on our behalf. We were not worthy of your incredible sacrifice, and yet you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten Son, born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to to die a perfect death, to be raised from the dead, and to now sit at the right hand of the Father as both our advocate and our propitiation. Lord, out of love today, help us to obey your word. Help us to see you as worthy as giving our complete lives to, that out of love we would be obedient to your commands. Help us as a church rally to each other, to lock arm in arm with each other, to be unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ, to encourage each other to strive to be obedient to your word and to tell others about this great gospel message. Lord, what an encouragement and and an admonishment it was to be able to talk to our missionaries this morning. These good brothers and sisters who have dedicated their lives to taking the gospel to people who have not heard before. Lord, help us to be inspired and encouraged by their example to take the gospel across the street. That we would see those around us told of this good news of of Jesus Christ and help us live consistent with this gospel that we proclaim. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.